You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our study in the book of Revelation, God willing, next week. But let's turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. While we're finding our way there, Sunday night we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we'll begin a new book this evening, the Minor Prophets, the, uh, the book of Micah. Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, and do good. Dwell in the land, and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass, and he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. Verse 12. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for see, he sees his day is coming. Uh, And then uh, in verse uh, 16, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Verse 23, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he will not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his right hand. I've been young, and now I'm old, and yet I have not seen the the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. And when the wicked are cut off, you'll see it. And I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a massive native green tree. And yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but could, he could not be found. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your voice in human history through your word. And as we pray so often, we have so many voices in our own head and certainly like never before in human history, so many voices coming at us through devices and through media and through conversations and so much is in the air. And Lord, how thankful we are to put all of that aside Turn to your word and to be able to hear your perspective and your truth in the midst of all of it. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Please be seated. Our nation and our society presently, I think as we find ourselves in the midst of it, we can't help but notice that there is a, a significant expansion of uh, wickedness. And uh, it is occurring in the form of lawlessness, in the form of violence, in the form of crime, in the form of murder. Uh, abortion, pornography, sexual immorality, the legalization increasingly and increasingly of mind-altering drugs and so forth. And I think it's important to realize that just because a government or just because a state or a federal government legalizes these things, it does not move them out of the wicked or out of the evil category. And all of these kind of things that are on the increase has people, I think, alternately uh, moving between anger and being fearful and being worried. And this morning I want to address uh, two things specifically as a reminder and as an encouragement uh, regarding all of this. And the first is to endeavor to kind of get understand the bigger picture of what is happening behind the scenes of these uh, immediate things that fill our headlines and, and so often fill our neighborhoods. And then second, to understand what God calls the righteous to do and the righteous to be when we find ourselves in this kind of a season in, in human history as he prescribes it here in verse 37. King David wrote this psalm about 3,000 years ago, which is comforting because it reminds us that what he's addressing here is as old as mankind, that it isn't something that just pops up every once in a while intermittently in, in human history, but this battle that is waged between righteousness and wickedness is a battle that will go on all the way till the end of the age when Jesus creates a new heaven uh, and a new earth. And so it's, uh, there's nothing new about it. Uh, to use uh, one of the most overused words in the last two years, it is not unprecedented. And uh, I know you never want to hear that word again the rest of your life, unprecedented. So anyway. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this psalm is the use, of, the repeated use of the terms the righteous and the wicked and how they're contrasted with one another. Now, of course, speaking of anything as righteous and wicked today is uh, completely out of, of style in our postmodern uh, culture today. And uh, uh, righteousness, wickedness, the righteous, the wicked, and uh, because of our modern culture's uh, very, very ignorant distrust of, of reason today, uh, of rational thought, of absolutes, and especially uh, moral and spiritual absolutes. But the Holy Spirit uses these terms in the Psalms, and he, in this psalm, and He does it with, absolutely without apology. Uh, because any, it, in any sane time in human history, the existence of the righteous and the wicked, and the existence of righteousness and wickedness is, is obvious to anybody that doesn't have uh, their ha head in the sand. Now, this tells us that there has to be some kind of a basis for, some standard for, uh, uh, by which the 
two groups can be judged and then be identified. And there is a standard, and the standard is known as the Bible. It's known as the Word of God. And the Word of God is just this fixed, unmoving standard that comes down uh, as it does from God, and it applies to every single generation uh, of, of human being, including our own. And, and uh, neither God nor heaven, as we see here in Psalm 37, is confused on this issue of wickedness and righteousness as, as people seem to be today. Now, I think it's also helpful as a Christian to realize that the expansion of wickedness in our nation and in our world uh, is not merely because the acts of wickedness are uh, increasing, but wickedness is increasing uh, because of a clash of worldviews that is occurring. And that presently, the right worldview, the biblical worldview, is losing ground. And the wrong worldview is gaining ground. I think it's very easy to look at the increase in crime, to look at the increase in sexual uh, immorality, which is the great sin of the Gentiles and has always been uh, the case, the increase of violence, the increase of incivility, and, and so forth, and just to view it as something that's merely a crime or a violence problem that we're having and that we need to address or that it's just kind of the inevitable slouching toward uh, uh, Gomorrah uh, that, that occurs periodically in, in human history, without realizing that these things in and of themselves do not constitute the core of our problem today, but they're merely symptoms of the core problem, what lies at the very heart of, of these things. And that is the worldview behind them. The present worldview that attempts to give legitimacy to wickedness so that we accept it as a, a new and legitimate way of life. And again, what is uh, actually happening today in our nation specifically is a clash of worldviews. And I would contend that the first such class, clash of worldviews has to do with the worldview of the secular theory of evolution clashing with the biblical worldview of creation. And the idea that life came into existence uh, out of non-life, uh, another unprecedented, by the way. And, and then it evolved into the marvelously complex and interconnected human bodies that we indwell. Uh, it, it evolved into the four uh, seasons uh, of the year, it evolved into everything we can see with our eyes every day, everything that we can hear with our ears and touch with our hands and so forth as opposed to the fact that all of this marvelously complex and interconnectedness of ourselves and, and, and everything around us 
can only be explained in God, in a creator, in a designer, behind all of this creation and this design in the world. And creation always testifies to a creator. Design always testifies uh, to a designer. Anywhere we see it in life, whether it's a watch or whether it's what put the watch out of business, an iPhone, or whether it's a floral arrangement. And what is true of these things is true of the entire universe and everything in it. And that because the creator, the designer, is always far greater than his creation or his design, uh, because he is infinitely greater and wiser than uh, his creation, that is us, because we owe our lives and all uh, that is around us to him, uh, he is deserving of our gratitude. He is deserving of our worship, and He is also deserving of our obedience. And of course, that's the great rub uh, for so many uh, people. They do not want to be accountable to God, even to their Creator, to His wisdom or to His laws or to His commandments, and so they accept the worldview of evolution as a means of escaping their accountability to Him. And the Apostle Paul, we could go on and on about that th this morning, but the Apostle Paul authoritatively brings this very thing out in his letter to the church in Rome. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I'll read it for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness uh, and uh, ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are seen, uh, clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so what is the inevitable result, the Holy Spirit says, uh, to the rejection of God as uh, Creator, and uh, the, thus the rejection of our, our moral accountability to Him as a result, Paul says, the consequence will always be ungodliness, unrighteousness, and then further, the suppression of truth, which we see so powerfully in our culture in the progression. You're going to have increased ungodliness, unrighteousness, and the suppression of truth in order to protect the practice of unrighteousness. And the result is the absence then of a universal morality because if man will not accept the morality or the definitions of right and wrong that God Almighty Himself provides to us, uh, then why would I accept any uh, mere human being who is my equal accept any morality that they might come up with uh, as well? Now, the second great clash of worldview going on today all around us has to do with the Bible's teaching that every human being is born fallen, that we are born tainted, 
uh, by original sin. We are born sinners. Uh, we are not sinners because we commit sin. We commit sin because we are sinners. We're born with a sin nature. We're born with an attraction uh, to sin. And all of this has to be kept in check by means of laws uh, that restrict the practice of wickedness and, and uh, then the enforcement of those laws as opposed to those who believe in the innate goodness of man. And uh, that every person is really good at their core. And when they do wrong things, the cause is not heredity, the cause is not original sin, the cause is not their own personal uh, responsibility, but it's environmental. Uh, that all behavior is learned, uh, that all crime is the product of societal injustice, and that physical punishment for wrongdoing uh, doesn't lead to rehabilitation. The solution is not found in law and in the enforcement of those laws, but in educating people in their own innate goodness. And then for them to be given limitless opportunities to fail while growing into the understanding of their innate goodness, uh, even when it takes the form of committing crimes, with society then dealing very leniently with them uh, as, uh, as lawbreakers, and thus not imposing jail or bail or even prosecution for their crimes upon them, even if the short-term cost. Uh, of this results in an explosion of crime and lawlessness and evil for everyone else. And the idea is that because we are born good, uh, that you can good people into being good. And, uh, and when you understand that this is uh, behind uh, the scene of so much that's going on, today and that it's a, it's a rejection of a fundamental truth within uh, the Bible and a fundamental understanding uh, of human beings, uh, only then can you make sense, for instance, of the decisions of the district attorneys and the cities of Los Angeles and San Francisco and uh, to fail to prosecute crime the very and enforce criminal law, the very thing that they were elected uh, to do. And, and I certainly don't believe that this group of people that have this particular uh, uh, view of human beings as being innately good, I don't view them as the, the, uh, the majority view. But increasingly, it is the view of the ruling elites. And whether they constitute 15% of the population or 20% of the population in government or in higher education or in uh, the corporate world or the entertainment world, uh, their influence is far greater uh, than their numbers. Well, you could hardly come up with a, 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 a two worldviews better uh, designed to uh, accommodate uh, the expansion of evil and wickedness in the world than those two worldviews. The idea that no one is accountable to God for the life they live, eliminate all fear of God within a culture, within the world itself. And then number two, the idea uh, that no one is accountable to society, no one is accountable to their fellow man for the life that they live. 
because man has not fallen in their understanding of things and in need of laws and the enforcement of those laws in order to maintain a, a civilized uh, society. But all, uh, all criminals, all lawbreakers, all wicked are not responsible for their own decisions and actions, but solely victims of their environment and victims of societal injustice, and thus not they, but society is to be held responsible for their decision and for their actions. And the result is that everyone is then free to become a law unto themselves. And the casualty of law and order is civilization. And civilization is a fragile thing. For anybody that knows anything about history in, 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 in the world. And so, uh, and all it can ever lead to is, is anarchy. Now, all, all of this, it, it, it complete with the terminology, such as social justice. You don't think people came up with that on their own in the last 20 years. That's as old as mankind. That's as old as the world. It is certainly as old as the 17th century when these kind of things were popularized by a French uh, philosopher by the name of Rousseau. He believed in all of these uh, things that are going on all around us today. It makes you wish that someone among the ruling elites would read a book once in a while so that we don't have to incur the historical damage that's already been done over and over and over again in history. And Rousseau so believed in his ideas and in his innate goodness that he put it fully into practice. And he bore five children into human existence and he gave them up into adoption right from the hospital against the wishes of his wife and never visited them and never saw any of them one time in his life. That's how well it played out in its ultimate conclusion and the philosopher that made all of this so popular in, in, the, uh, in the, the modern uh, world. And so we see that what's happening around us at its core is it merely a crime or a wickedness wave? But it's the consequence of a nation or a people's uh, increasing uh, re uh, rejection uh, of, uh, of uh, a, a, the biblical worldview, that our problems are moral and our problems are spiritual at their core, and thus the solutions are moral and spiritual at their core. And all of this is the consequence of the continued attempt to destroy the biblical foundation for government in this country and uh, the biblical foundation for our culture with very, very few people now holding on to the age-old advice that when you tear down a wall, you might want to ask why it got built to begin with and what it was intended to protect us from. And that is never more important than you, when you are tearing down God's walls that He erects for our safety uh, in His Word.
Now let's briefly uh, look at some of the God's instruction to us as Christians as we find ourselves in these kind of seasons in human history. As I mentioned, in Psalm, Psalm 37 is uh, authored by, written by King David. And it's helpful to realize, as you see it in verse 25, that he wrote this very late in his life. So he's seen a lot of life. He's been a shepherd boy. Uh, he knows want. He knows uh, that kind of an end of life, the simplicity end of life. He's been a king. Uh, that he can have everything in life that he wants. He's known everything in between those two extremes. He knows what it's like to have enjoyed absolute popularity uh, by the people and then for the people to turn on him and become a refugee in, uh, from his, his own country. He knows what it is to walk with God, to love God, to obey God, and he knows what it is to sin and to sin greatly uh, in his life. He understands the consequences of wickedness. And he writes the psalm by the Holy Spirit as an acrostic. And uh, in other words, the, uh, uh, every other uh, verse in the psalm is tied to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then the third verse with the second, and so forth throughout the psalm. The reason that people wrote acrostics in terms of, of psalms or songs in the ancient world was in order to help people then memorize the psalm. When you see a psalm that is written as an acrostic, the intention is, is that it would make it easier for people to memorize. The intention of the author is that it would be uh, memorized uh, by people. And uh, so David writes this with the idea that it would be memorized and then ideally by a young person. Uh, early in, in life, uh, so that they would then be impacted by the psalm and have Psalm 37 be the psalm through which they filter uh, the wickedness and the evil of life that all of us, in whatever measure it might be, encounter in, in, human, uh, in human history. And through this psalm, it's kind of like to me the picture that I get with Psalm 37 is you've got the aged King David uh, meets us in an olive grove somewhere that belongs to him and he puts an arm around our shoulders kind of individually and, uh, and then he, he takes us on a long walk while he instructs us concerning how we're to live our lives when the wicked are in power and when the wicked are dominating uh, the world in which we live. Whether it has to do with a nation, whether it has to do with a state, whether it has to do with a city, whether it has to do with a workplace, whether it has to do with a neighborhood or an apartment complex or a, a school or a home. And so this is always needed instruction for uh, the child of God in this uh, fallen world. One day there'll be no more wickedness, uh, but that day hasn't uh, come just yet. Uh, David begins with the negative first, what we're not to do in verse 1. We're not to fret because of uh, evildoers. And that word fret, it means to be warm, or it means to fume, or to fume until you become warm. And I know none of us uh, fume at all. 
presently uh, in, in, in the face of, of wickedness. But the fact of the matter is we do. And so God, David is saying by the Spirit, don't get all heated up, don't get all worked up, don't burn with anger over the apparent success of evil uh, men around you. Now again, there, there, this must be a tendency and kind of a first reaction uh, of the righteous to this kind of thing because David repeats this uh, three times in the psalm, in verse 1, in verse 7, and then in the, uh, again in verse 8. And of course, we all know how easy it is to fret and fume because of evildoers because evildoing, because lawlessness is a source of great frustration to the righteous because uh, wickedness always expands at the expense of righteousness. Uh, the wicked always expand at the expense uh, of the righteous. You can't help but notice the expansion of wickedness and it, it becomes a, so, a sore spot as a, a result of, uh, of that. And we know from our own eyes that living an evil life uh, is a choice, and the same as living a righteous life, and that people should be held responsible for uh, their choices. Now, uh, David will tell us why we're not to uh, fume or to fret in just a moment, so uh, sit tight related to that. He tells us second in verse 1 that we're not to be envious of the workers of iniquity. We're not to desire their sin. Uh, we're not to desire their prosperity. We're not to desire their way of life. And this is important for us to hear, um, especially, I think, the younger we are. Because in our nation, uh, sin and iniquity is so romanticized um, in entertainment and television and music and video games, social media, and iniquity is presented in a way that makes uh, uh, becoming or being a gangster or uh, engaging in violence or drinking or drugs or sexual immorality or crime as something that's desirable. That this is the way to live. And if you don't live the life of the wicked, then you're missing out on, on how life uh, is to be uh, lived. And they, they seem to be so prosperous, and they seem to be having uh, so much fun. And God steps in to that delusion, that lie that we can be convinced of at, at, at times where the wicked really gain control uh, of everything, and He steps in and says, don't you believe it. Don't you believe it? I know better. I know all about their life, not just as, as it's presented in media, not as it's just presented in, in the money-making ways and in the public ways. I know what their lives are like privately. I know the private price they pay to their conscience, to their health, to their body, to their relationships on the basis of the wickedness that they live. Don't ever envy uh, the workers of uh, iniquity. He says further in verse uh, 2 that there, the, he reminds us that their season is short-lived. And so what keeps me from fuming, what keeps me from burning with anger 
is the realization that most often their lives and their prosperity is very, very short-lived, and, and their end comes quickly. The knowledge that God is going to deal with them, that crime doesn't really pay, and God makes sure that it doesn't pay, and because of that, there's no future in wickedness. And then uh, David turns to the positive here in verses 3 through 8, what we're to do instead of fretting and uh, fuming and worrying. He tells us to trust in the Lord, verse 3. And uh, in, in, instead of that fretting, to trust in the Lord to watch over us in the middle of these kind of, of seasons in human history. We say, trust in the Lord. That's so, I mean, where do you get, you put even, get your mind around where you begin with that in the context of, of wickedness and, and uh, 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 of evil? What is he saying here to trust in the Lord? What does it look like? Well, I know one way thing that it looks like, and that is by remembering that not one of the hundreds and hundreds of promises that God has given us in His Word is ever going to be put uh, in jeopardy uh, by the wicked. And so we trust in Him as we uh, focus on, as we claim His promises, knowing that God is going to keep every single one of them and that every single one of His promises is going to have the final say in my life and in human history. He says further that we are to do good in verse 3. Now, for some of us, if we were to give up all of our fuming and worrying, that would free up an enormous amount of time in our lives. And uh, so how then uh, do we fill it constructively? And David wants us to know how, how we, uh, what we should do with that time that we've gained. And, and do good, it carries the idea of as much as they are committed to doing evil, we are to be committed to doing good. And that is to become a part of the solution. Uh, fuming and getting angry, uh, uh, that doesn't solve anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. It needs to translate into uh, doing good. Okay, Lord, this is something that really bothers me. This is unfair. Uh, this is not right what is happening here. What is the solution here, biblically? And then what part am I to play in that? And of course, prayer is a part in that, but he may have you do anything from uh, run for office or do whatever he might uh, uh, do. I mean, he put Joseph and he put uh, Daniel in high places in, in, uh, in, uh, in government uh, for just that, that purpose. But uh, just to ask the Lord, uh, what is it? That, uh, that I can be a part of the solution in pushing this back. And of course, the weapons of our warfare in all of this, we don't, uh, uh, you know, repay reviling for reviling. Our weapons are truth and love. That's why you see the, that's why you see the great focused battle against truth in our culture. Uh, the, in, the incredible... Uh, intimidation that is being meted out uh, against speaking the truth, and especially speaking the truth 
about what God has to say about anything. And yet that's our weapon. And to do one of the things of doing good is to simply represent His truth about the issues of life and the circumstances we find ourselves in, uh, in, uh, in life. And, and certainly all of this begins in, in terms of doing good. It begins with our own lives, just faithfully living the Christian life out in, in, in uh, uh, front of, of the whole world, to be that salt, to be that light that Jesus uh, speaks of in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, and in our uh, workplaces. And this kind of thing is very powerful. Jesus taught that like salt, uh, it, 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 it arrests corruption, and so does doing good. And, and, uh, and the light exposes the weakness of evil. One of the problems about the Christian is a Christian is very, very bad advertising uh, for the new morality or the, the new wickedness. It certainly speaks for uh, the limits of the power uh, of wickedness and in the sense that we remain unconverted by it. It doesn't move us. It doesn't change us. Uh, and we don't convert to it. And because we don't and we live this distinctive life, it gives hope to people around us who have bought the lie to see there's someone who didn't buy into that culture or into that thing. I wonder why. And then the life is watched, or maybe the question is asked, why don't you do that? Why don't you engage in that? And the door is then open to us to share uh, the, the reasons uh, why. And uh, very often, we can't always overthrow some evil that's surrounding our lives, but we can do this, and then entrust that our lives as salt and light are in the hands of the Lord for Him to uh, use however He sees fit in, in our nation and in our world for the kingdom uh, uh, of God and the ultimate overthrow of evil. He says further in verse 3 that we're to dwell in the land and feed on God's faithfulness. And so he says, uh, in other words, just stay where you are. Don't let the evildoers drive you out of the land or drive you out of the nation or out of the place where God has put you. Now, it doesn't mean that we uh, are not to move out of a particularly evil neighborhood uh, or city or state or that God would never direct us to do that, but we are never to do that as a surrender to evil. We are to uh, feed and to strengthen ourselves, he says, instead with thoughts of God's faithfulness. To look and to say, this is miserable, but God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will be faithful to me in this situation. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Remember His faithfulness and allow it to sustain us. And then he says in verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. And the word delight carries not only the idea of delighting, but it carries the idea, literally the word can mean pampering. Uh, pamper yourselves uh, in the Lord. 
We tend to think of pampering as something that has to do with a, a day spa or, or something uh, like that. And, uh, but we can delight and pamper ourselves in the Lord by remembering His goodness, by remembering His blessings, and then uh, worshiping Him. Remembering that in the, whatever it is that's going on around us, that the Christian life is the greatest life that any human being can live. And to remind myself, what am I going to do? Go join that? I am living the greatest life a human being can live, and that is the Christian life. No matter what kind of context of wickedness, I may be forced to live that life. I'm still living uh, the greatest life you can live. And you still want to talk about difficult contexts in which to uh, kind of worship the Lord in remembering His blessings and then worshiping Him for His blessings. We think about Paul and Silas in that prison in the book of Acts in the city of Philippi. They've been beaten to a pulp. They're down in the depths of the prison. Their hands and, and feet are locked in the stocks. And, uh, and instead of everybody in the jail and the jailer hearing them whine and, and, and how awful and how terrible it is to be a Christian and what kind of a God would allow, uh, you know, this kind of injustice to come so close and all, instead what did we, they hear? They heard Paul and Silas uh, praying and worshiping God in the midst of, uh, of the cell. And then God took their salt and their light uh, took it and used it how he wanted to then in that situation by an earthquake and the releasing and ultimately the conversion uh, of the, uh, the, the, the jailer there in that prison. And he gives the promise to delight, delighters, he will give us the desires of our heart. And so uh, he will make himself the delight of our lives and, and, and such a delight uh, he will make uh, himself such a delightful thing within our lives uh, that the misery of our circumstances will pale in comparison. He said in verse 5, uh, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him. And the word commit there means to, to roll. Roll the situation over to Him. Uh, roll it upon Him. And how does a person do that? Uh, here is, is prayer. Lord, I can't carry this anymore. This is too much for me to carry. I'm trying to solve all of the problems of the world or whatever it might be, or even my own life. And, I, and I, now I just roll this over. Lord, this, it, this is a mess. It's unfair. It looks like evil is winning and good is losing. And, and at this moment, when things are at their worst, I just freshly commit myself to you and, and trusting in you. I commit my life, my career, my reputation to you. And we commit our ways to, to him even though society can reach a place where uh, we can begin to pay a price in terms of career or in terms of finances and so forth by being faithful to Him. Now, of necessity, the expansion of evil and uh, uh, evildoers in the world around us, one of the things that, will, that absolutely necessitates in our lives is the expansion of a prayer life. And uh, it will always deepen our prayer life. 
And that's what David is talking about here, committing our way to the Lord. That occurs through prayer. He said further in verse 7, to rest in the Lord. That literally means to be silent. And he's talking here about the silence that comes uh, with the confidence that God is in complete control of human history and He is in complete control of my life. He says further in verse 7 that we're to wait patiently uh, for Him. Uh, in other words, we know that He wins in human history. We know that He's going to win in every situation we face uh, individually. And now we just have to be patient while uh, all of that is coming forth in His, uh, in his timing. And it's important to realize that while we are waiting, God is always working. Uh, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, Isaiah uh, wrote, uh, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor the eye seen any God besides you. And then he describes the Lord who acts for the one who waits for uh, him. And so, while time looks like it's being lost and wasted, it never is. While we wait, God is always working. I think all of us have situations in our life where uh, we look at something and we say, uh, God, that would be a, this is a perfect timing to bring that to an end. And he, he doesn't take my suggestion. And then three days later, there's another opportunity for him to take care of this thing. I mean, anybody could see that's, a, that's an opening you could drive a white freight liner through. And he passes up on that. And then what happens when we finally see him act in the situation, we realize that the situation that he was going to address was way bigger and way more important than the perspective that I had and what I thought was the most important thing about the situation. So it requires waiting on Him. And, and always when we wait for Him, and, he, and when God makes us wait, it's always because He has something better in mind than, than we have in mind in the situation. He says further in verse 8, to cease from anger uh, and wrath, God says, don't try and help me out with your anger and your wrath at times like this. And I need to hear that. We need to hear that. And uh, James writes in the New Testament, uh, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's of no help to God. So he says, just keep that out of the arsenal. Uh, cease from anger and wrath. And then, and, and that's, he tells us, is how we're to live our lives when the wicked are in power, when the wicked dominate the world in which we live. And then he, the remainder of the psalm, he tells us uh, why. Very briefly, we've certainly won't exhaust it, but just a handful of things here. As he, he continues to, uh, this walk with us, and he gives us the reasons why we're to do so. And he contrasts the, re, the, the life of the righteous with the life of, of evildoers. He says in verses 9 through 11, that they have two entirely different futures uh, ahead of them. The evildoer is going to be cut off, and uh, that is destroyed, and the, the godly will inherit the earth. And it's the reminder that we're on the winning side, for whatever it looks like at the moment, that we are on the winning side. 
And then in verses 12 through uh, 15, the Lord reminds us that He will not allow the wicked to be successful in the destruction of the righteous. And it's true. You think about how many times in human history has wickedness arisen to a point where it looks like uh, righteousness and the righteous would be exterminated. And, uh, and, and yet always it reaches this kind of uh, crescendo and, uh, and it looks like they're in the place now of eradicating uh, the godly in the way that they want to, but they always lose. And you know why they lose? Because God won't let them be successful. Even with our corrupt nature from Adam and Eve, and, and the accessibility of sin, the hunger for sin in wickedness, even those things put together, you think it would be, they're, they're, uh, uh, you take God out of the equation and the righteous would appear, disappear. But God doesn't allow uh, it to happen. He does not allow uh, the wicked to be successful in that. It is interesting to me um, that God laughs at the thoughts and the plots uh, of the wicked. So if he can keep his sense of humor uh, in, in the midst of it, we can have a sense of humor in the midst of it too. And, and what he laughs at is the very idea that they think they have any hope of winning. You might ask yourself, uh, does God, uh, is there any record in the Bible of God laughing? Yes, one of the places is right here. And he, he, he does laugh. And the, and the idea that the wicked will ever prevail is, is considered to be hysterically funny in heaven. It's preposterous from the perspective of heaven that that could ever, ever happen. And God will have the last laugh, and it's good for us to be reminded of that. And then in verses 16 and 17, we're to remember that the righteous gets more enjoyment out of a little in life that's enjoyed with God than the wicked do out of all of their riches without Him. The wicked lack what the godly uh, have. The wicked has no capacity to enjoy uh, their uh, wickedness, to enjoy life in a way that the righteous do, and God makes sure of it. And so you and I can believe that you and I get more enjoyment sitting at our kitchen table or counter with a bowl of tomato soup and a tuna sandwich than the wicked gets out of a hundred meals and the finest restaurants uh, in uh, the world. They have no capacity to enjoy life in the way that we do because they don't understand uh, the context in which life is meant to be lived, to be shared with God. He says further in eight, verses 18 to 20 that the righteous have a confidence in difficult times that the wicked uh, do not have, including uh, everlasting life. In verses 21 and 22, he tells us that the righteous have the blessing of a good reputation among their fellow men, and the wicked man uh, does not. And here is the additional blessing of a clean conscience, 
of a clear conscience, of living my life uh, knowing that I am right with God and knowing that I am right with my fellow man. And, and those of us who've been dogged by uh, a guilty conscience realize uh, how impossible it is to enjoy life when you're dogged by that. When you look around and you not only know that within the room there are one or two people that I have done wrong to and shafted, uh, but to be in that same room and know that I have done that to over half of the people in the room. How in the world could, uh, could a person enjoy uh, life in, in that way uh, with, with a conscience that is so guilty? In the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote, a good name is to be chosen rather than uh, great riches. And that's an important way to view riches in life, and especially in the context of enlarging uh, wickedness. In verses 24 and, and, uh, 23 and 24, the wicked have the confidence that the path that we're on is a sure path. And the, and the, uh, the wicked, uh, 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 the righteous have the confidence that the path that he's on is sure, and, and the wicked don't have that kind of, of, of a confidence. It, when it talks about ordered there, uh, it means to made firm or established. And so, as the righteous obeys God's word, his, his foundation is firm, and he knows it's firm. It may be unpopular, it may be blaspheme, but he or she knows the foundation is firm. And the wicked live in a constant fear of the instability of their life, the instability of a foundation of wickedness. They live in a constant fear for, uh, of the other shoe dropping, and they never forget that, uh, of the possibility of that being uh, right around the corner in their lives. And then finally, for our purposes this morning, in verses 34 to 36, David reminds us that there's no longevity uh, in evil. Uh, the wicked may build something, they may build something uh, 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 even great, but they have no capacity to hold on to it. And no matter how powerful or stable or eternal it may look, uh, it has sown within it the seeds for its own destruction. Evil cannot be self-existent. Evil is a parasite. It must live off of virtue. It must live off of righteousness and off of the righteous because evil has no capacity to control itself. It has no self-discipline. It will always go way beyond any kind of a safe measure that, it, uh, that, that could keep it in a, in a small uh, uh, place, but because it works to destroy what is good and virtuous, it destroys what it must uh, live off, uh, off, of, off of. And so uh, it, it, uh, all of this uh, leads to greater and greater evil, this lack of discipline, greater and greater excess until it collapses under its own weight. And it's David's way of saying there's no future in evil. Just set your stopwatch. Uh, there's no future in, in evil. It always has to rebound back. 
Think about uh, if you've ever read related to uh, the Third Reich, Nazi Germany, and, and Hitler. He was establishing a Reich that was going to last for a thousand years. And he built buildings for a th- that were supposed to last for a thousand years. And uh, uh, the uh, Nazi Germany and Nazism lasted less than 10 years. And not even able to assess the, the, the implications of where the wickedness uh, would go. And so we'll stop there this morning. And, and with that, uh, we'll bring our walk with David through the through the uh, olive uh, orchard uh, to, an, to an end. And I, and I think is, is a good way of looking at Psalm 37. And, uh, and I think always as I read Psalm 37, think about it in terms of, of that walk with Him. I'm always gratit- grateful for the reminder uh, of, of His not to fret because of evildoers. And then all of the reasons that God has supplied to us uh, as His people for not fretting, however significant, however daunting uh, it it may seem uh, at the moment. And so wonderful, wonderful psalm for some of you. It's a very old friend. And for others of you, it's the first time that you've studied it. And it will become a friend to you as the Lord's return Uh, continues to near. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, there's certainly nothing new under the sun and no one is uh, more um, understanding of that uh, than you. And we thank you for this kind of clarity from this psalm for how to process what it is that's going on around us. What are the symptoms? What are the core problems? What's it all flowing out of? And then, so importantly, how we are to live in the midst of all of this. And we pray that you'd use this psalm to continue to direct us, Lord, in our lives so that it wouldn't be a puppet show where our lives and our attention and our emotions are are drawn to these smaller things that, that keep uh, the culture and the society uh, entertained or thinking that these are the real problems. But to recognize, Lord, these are moral and spiritual problems and they will only be solved with moral and spiritual solutions. So help us to stay busy about your calling upon our lives and doing good in the midst of all of this for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Damian Kyle. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Damian's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.